0: This passage begins with a tale of life, but the passage we've read this morning ends with a lie. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of the Word. If you, I recommend if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 28 and keep your Bibles open as we go through this passage. You may be seated. See what the Lord is saying to us today. This is the morning when Christian Church celebrates what we have come to know as Easter. It is the day when we commemorate and celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm sure that I do not need to remind you that Resurrection Sunday is not about Easter bunnies, it's not about Easter eggs, or even the giving of gifts, as wonderful as all those things are, but it is about celebrating the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead on the first Resurrection Sunday. Amen. With that in our minds this morning, I want us just to meander through this passage of Matthew chapter 28. Again, I encourage you to open your Bibles as we we go through it. Let's look at some of these events that took place at that time and see what they have to say to us today. We just saw two women expressing their hearts unto the Lord. And I want to talk first about the approach of the women. Matthew records the fact that two Women came that morning. The other gospel writers also reveal the fact that others came also. There's no contradiction here. They probably arrived as part of of a different group. But however they came, we know and we saw displayed for us this morning, they were terribly sad, they were defeated, they were discouraged, they were disheartened. Some had witnessed the death of Jesus and others had simply heard about it and what had taken place on the cross. And they were coming to pay their last respects to the body of the Lord. But I want you for just a moment to consider their motives with me, their motives for why they came on that Sunday morning, because some came to look, some came to labor, and some came to linger. There are those who came to look. Maybe they were coming to pray. Maybe they were coming to meditate near the place where his body had been buried. Maybe they were coming to make sure that everything was in place and everything was in order at the burial site, at the tomb. Whatever the reason, we are told, and we just read, that they came to see the sepulcher. They came to visit the tomb. So some came to look. Some came to labor. The Gospels of Mark and Luke tell us that some of the women came to perform one last labor of love for the Lord Jesus. They came to finish anointing his body for burial, and they wanted to serve him one last time. Some came to look. Some came to labor and then there were those who came to linger. We saw that just a minute ago. The Gospel of John tells us that Mary Magdalene lingered at the tomb after the others had already gone away. she was a woman who owed much to Jesus because there had been a time when he had delivered her from seven demons that possessed her. Her life had been radically changed and she loved Jesus more than life itself. If you remember, she was one of the last at the cross and she was the first to see him after he had risen from the dead. Her love for Christ, for what he had done for her, was absolutely immense. Surely her heart was broken that morning, but she still came to love him and came to worship him. And I can't help but wonder which one of these three groups maybe you identify with. Are you one who has come to look? Have you come to labor? Or have you come to linger on any given Sunday morning at Bethesda. I'm always aware that there are folks who have showed up just to check us out they are just come to give us a look, and that's great. We welcome you. We're glad you're here, and we I think you found an incredible place with incredible people. So you're always welcome. But I also know that apart from the church itself, there are people that we encounter that have only come to give a look at Jesus. They're casually interested in Him for, what, for whatever reason that might be. Maybe something in their life has caused them to want to reconnect with spiritual roots from that have been invested in them from their parents or grand, grandparents, whatever it was, but they are only casually interested in in Jesus. There are some churches who would call these people seekers, and that's fine. They're seeking after the truth. They're seeking after something that will fulfill that which is inside, but they've only come to give a look. They're just looking. They're just checking it out. Well, I just want you to know this. If that's you today and you've come to give him a look, I want to promise you this. You will taste and see that the Lord is good, and once you have seen him, he will be marvelous in your eyes. Is there a witness to that in the house today? When I think about those who've come to labor, I I, I look around at I looked yesterday at the incredible event that that took place, and the spectacular event with the, the, the that they had for the children, and there was the the um, the run, the 5K run that took place. A superb job done by our Child Development Center and Amy Lowe and Amber Gary, and I'm thankful for the incredible job Brenda Hardman did and her team. It was it was a, it was an amazing morning, and as I was there with my granddaughter and my kids that are here from Georgia, um, as I was there and we were pulling away, I I couldn't help but look at all those who, who were serving and who had volunteered and who were there. Why were they there? They weren't there because they had nothing else to do. They were there because they loved the Lord Jesus and they wanted to serve Him in some way. And they were there to labor. And thank God for those who are willing to put their hand to the plow. Thank God for those who are willing to come and serve. Let me tell you, Bethesda runs on people who are willing to serve. We operate by the church of the Lord Jesus being involved in service. If you've not found your place in service, in this house. Trust me, we've got a place for you to serve. We've got always have places where we need people. We sit in staff meetings all the time and say, I need more volunteers. Brenda said that we need more volunteers for this and more for that. We are always looking. And so thank God for people who have come to labor. But oh, the joys for those who come to linger at the feet of Jesus. One of my favorite songwriters that I've worked with over the years has often talked about no matter what else is going on, she's anxious to get back to just wait at the feet of Jesus and just to worship him. She lives just to worship him. The ones who have come to linger at the feet of Jesus have truly found that in the presence of the Lord is fullness of and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is amazing to see when people are willing to linger at the feet of Jesus, that's when he reveals himself. That's when he makes known to you the mysteries and the riches of his word. When you are lingering at the feet of Jesus, he reveals himself to those people and it's those people whose hearts burn with passion for the love of the risen Savior. Some people come to look. Some people come to labor. Some people come to linger. Where are you in that crowd today? Looking at verses 2 through 8, there's the activity of the angel. Humanity wasn't the only one that sent ambassadors to the tomb that morning. Heaven also sent an emissary to proclaim the good news that Jesus was not dead, but he's alive. I want to just look very quickly what the angel did. Look at their activities of the angel on that resurrection Sunday, because when I read this passage particularly verses 2 through 8 I see three obstacles that the angel removed and I want you to consider them with me. Number 1, the first obstacle removed was the angel rolled away the stone. The women had made their way to the tomb to finish preparing the body for burial. One of their concerns was how in the world are we going to remove that stone? We don't have the strength. We don't have so they could not know how they were going to do that, but the stone represented the finality of death to them. Not only was it large and massive and overwhelming for them, but it also was the exclamation point at the end of the sentence of death because to them that, that stone said, He is gone and gone forever. Thank God the Lord took care of that stone and not just to let Jesus out because church, he was long gone before the angel ever got there on that scene. He was long gone. The stone was rolled away that so men could look in to the tomb and see that it was forever empty. Hallelujah. The first obstacle to our faith, and I'm wondering if it's an obstacle to your faith today, is the stone was rolled away. Well, there's a second obstacle that I notice in verses 3 and 4, if you're following along. Second obstacle removed by the angel. The chief priests and Pharisees were concerned that the prophecies of Jesus might actually come true. What, What if this actually happened? They wanted, so they had to put a guard to be posted at the tomb. It reminds me of this, and I think it's a sad indictment against the church, but it is true that sometimes rank infidels know more about the Bible. Rank infidels, people of the world, know more about the possibility of what Christianity is and what it can be than people who claim to know the name of Jesus. So what happened is they sealed it with Pilate's seal and they posted a company of guards at the door. The detachment of soldiers stood as an obstacle between the saints and their entrance into the tomb of Jesus. However, when the angel appeared, he made short work of those soldiers. You just read it a moment ago. These these battle-hardened men that were so strong and supposed to protect, they fainted at his feet like a bunch of silly teenagers at a Justin Bieber concert second obstacle to our faith, the guard at the tomb. There's a third obstacle I see, and I find it in verses 5 through 7, and that is this. As the angel began to speak to the women that morning, the greatest obstacle of all, the biggest obstacle they had was that, that unbelief. His message, the angel's message, inspired them to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead because he, he reminded them of several things. And I, let me just give you a few of them. The angel reminded them of the past in verse 5. They were reminded of the crucifixion, but of course they needed no reminder of the crucifixion. They were, they were in, in struggling in grief with what had taken place. They both had been there. But still, the fact of his death is emphasized in what the angel is telling them. It reminds us of the importance of the death of Jesus on the cross. His death provided the sacrifice that was needed to cleanse sinners from their sins to make them right with God, and how many are thankful for it today? Well, he reminded them of their past, but also the angel reminded them of their present in verse 6. because the angel says, you were here at this tomb. The Christ is not. He's risen. And it was the greatest proclamation ever to fall upon human ears. Church, his death was the perfect eternal payment for sin. But his resurrection was God's receipt for the full amount. Because you know what, church? A dead Savior can save no one. But a living Savior can offer salvation to all those who come by faith. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. But when he rose from the dead, from the heavens, God the Father looked down and he said, and I am satisfied with the work of my Son." And now Jesus had proven that he was who he claimed to be all along, and he can declare his victory over death. Now we look to him by faith, and we can be confident of his power to save. Well, there's something else that I think the angel reminded them. They reminded them of the promise. They reminded, the angel reminded them that his resurrection really shouldn't have taken them by surprise. Why, why were they surprised? He had been talking about it all along. He been, had been declaring what was going to take place. They knew what was going to happen. The resurrection should not have caught them off guard. The crucifixion should not have taken them, them by surprise. In fact, they should have been holding a service that morning, early that morning, at, at the tomb. should have been singing songs of praise because there was a promise that they had. The angel was reminding them of that promise. And then in verse 6, the angel reminds them of the proof. I love this. The angel's invitation is for them to look into the tomb and, and he, they see that Jesus is gone. And then later, when Peter and John arrive at the tomb, John records the fact that the linen cloths that had been wrapped around Christ's body were still lying there like an empty cocoon. And the napkin that had been laid about his face was folded in a place by itself. And it's those two factors... That caused John to believe what had taken place. That began to buoy his faith and cause him to be stirred inside because he realized this is true. That very sight caused him to believe in the resurrection. And let me give you the two reasons why and why it was distinctive to John. that these, this, Why the appearance and arrangement of the grave clothes were of such importance. Number one, it's an indication that there was no sign of human intervention in what took place in that tomb. If someone had taken the body, they could not have removed it through the grave clothes because of the way that they remained. It's likely they wouldn't have removed them anyway. They would have taken the body with them, wrapped in the grave clothes. Neither would they have taken the time to fold the napkin neatly, for it too would have been probably taken with the body, or at the very least it would have been thrown away rather haphazardly and discarded. So in short, the empty tomb was a scene of perfect order, which did nothing but suggest that only a resurrection had taken place. Here's a second one that I find very interesting. It was the ancient oriental custom of the napkin that was upon his face. When a man with servants was eating a meal, he would often use his napkin to signal to the servants during the course of the meal. And here's how he did. This was the custom of the day. If he left the table and wadded the napkin up, and just laid it there on the table, it meant that he was finished and he would not be coming back. If, however, he neatly folded the napkin and then placed it on the table, it told his servants that he was stepping away for a moment but that he would be right back. Jesus was telling his disciples by the way that napkin was dealt with, I may be out of your sight right now, but I will be right back. When Peter and John arrived at the tomb, they feared the worst. Uh, Who knows what they thought? Maybe they thought robbers had come or that Jews had taken his body away. All kinds of ideas, I'm sure. And even Mary... When she saw the folded napkin and knew the custom, but somehow she, she missed that in the process of seeing everything. She assumed that the gardener had moved the body of the Lord, overwhelmed with, with what she was experiencing. And yet John, who had been raised with servants, we, we read in other parts of Scripture, he, he understood this whole thing about the napkin because he had been raised with servants. He probably knew that custom, and he quickly grasped its meaning. And so that's what made the difference for him and caused him to see. The angel reminded them also of the plan in verses 7 and 8, the plan, that they were to go and share the good news that Jesus was risen from the dead. Jesus was risen from the dead. And those disciples who were cowering in fear were doing so because for all they knew, they were going to be the next ones. The next cross was going to be theirs. But they were the ones to receive the glorious news that Jesus had conquered death and he was alive forevermore. Those women received a glorious message from the angel that day and it was a message of hope. It was a message of life. It was a message of victory. I'm just wondering if there's anybody in the room today who's thankful that you've received a message of hope, life, and victory. Just breathe a hallelujah. Bless the Lord. It was a message that everyone needed. Then, it is a message that everyone still needs today. Church, may we never forget that the message of the tomb is as fresh today as it was back then. It is as needed today as it was back then because we are living in a world with no foundations. And everyone is looking for that which has a sure foundation. You are looking to give yourself to something. You're looking to run after something that has a sure foundation. But the truth is there is nothing in this world that we can count on. You cannot count on any material gains that could go away in a heartbeat. You can't even count on your friends or even your family. Some of your friends and family will leave you or go another way and they will all die. And so we keep looking for something with a sure foundation to stand upon. And I'm here to declare again this morning, the only sure foundation is the rock Christ Jesus and that which we have celebrated in his resurrection today. (laughs) Verses 9 and 10 give us the appearance of the Savior. Verse 9 specifically. As they were going to tell the others, Jesus himself met them in the way. He gave them a personal word of encouragement and hope. He came to them personally so that they might know firsthand that he had indeed risen from the dead. It is a wonderful thing to hear the gospel from others or hear about what Jesus can do. I'm so glad someone shared the gospel with me. It's wonderful to hear other people's testimony and what the Lord has done for them, but there is nothing like meeting him yourself. I'm always... Um, urged to encourage young people, young adults, so thankful even the children that are raised in in church. I saw the young people that were that were involved this morning, so thankful for what we 're able to invest in them and infuse in their life and in their spirit. But I tell you what, there's, there comes a day and time when they have to totally recognize that they were the one why, why Christ died. It was their sin that put him on the cross. And it, you reach a and I've noticed in the life of so many young people, especially young people raised in the church, they have to own their own faith. They have to come to a place where it's not because grandma told me or my grandpa told me it's wonderful was to hear that. It's wonderful to have the heritage. It wasn't because just uh, my mom wanted me to or my dad wanted me to. I must own my own faith. I stand alone before the Lord Jesus. And so that's why it is important to hear firsthand. And it is a glorious day when Jesus comes to you and reveals to you your sin and makes you to know that you have a way of escape to get out of that sin. There's nothing like meeting the living Christ for yourself. Is there an amen to that? The other part of verse 9 is the adoration of the Lord. When they meet him, they're overcome with love and joy so that they fall at his feet in worship. Worship is the natural reaction for the person who really has grasped what Christ has done for them. When you understand that it was your sin that put him on the cross. When you understand that heaven looked down and God the Father looked down upon that cross, he was looking from a completely different perspective perspective than when you look up at the cross. He saw nothing but every vile, ugly, filthy thing that had ever been done and had to smite his son. And that you have a responsibility in that. And then when you realize the, the theology of substitution, it should have been you, it should have been me on that cross but that Christ, the perfect, innocent Lamb of God, took your place upon the cross. That should do nothing but cause every person in the house to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Can you say it under your breath this morning? Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done. There's no need ever to hold back our love and our expression to the Lord Jesus because it's the theme of heaven's worship and he should be the theme of worship on earth as well. Verse 10 the Lord speaks to these ladies it's a comfort to their hearts and he confirms their mission he assures to them that all is well that the time has passed for them to be afraid he is alive and he's going to take care of that which arises in their life And that is glorious news. Church, we serve a risen Savior, and he's in the world today. And only a living Lord can give peace and assurance to the hearts of people. Only a living Lord can be present with you along the way through whatever you face in life's difficulties, whatever problem, whatever trial, whatever crisis is taking. Only a living Lord says, I will be be with you, and I will be your help, particularly in the time of trouble. Only the living Lord can speak words of comfort and peace and hope when they're so desperately needed. Thank God for our living Lord this morning. But you read it just a moment ago. Our passage started with the tale of life, but then it turns into a lie because there's the allegations of the enemy in verses 11 through 15, the last part of it. Not everyone who heard about the events at the tomb were overjoyed. We see these in these closing verses of our text. The enemies of the cross and of the resurrection were already gathering to try to find a way around what had happened that day. But there was a problem in verse 11. The problem that they faced was this. Jesus, if Jesus, was really alive from the dead, then the Jews had a problem. And it meant that he was right and they were wrong. It meant that their system of worship was dead and that Jesus alone was the path to salvation. It meant they had to find a way to silence the disciples and to counteract what had happened at the garden tomb early that morning. And it was terrifying to them. By the way, let me just add this all religious systems in the world are bothered by the empty tomb. Did you know that? It creates a problem for pretty much everybody. You see, you can go to China and you can find the tomb of Buddha and over the door of that tomb, it will say occupied because he's still there. You can go to the Middle East and find the tomb of Muhammad and it will say occupied over the door. You can go to Russia and you can look at the body of Lenin in his glass coffin and the sign should say occupied. But when you travel to Palestine, And you go to an old tomb hewn out of a rock. The tomb where once they tell us the body of Jesus laid. What does the sign say over that door? It says vacant. He is not here for he is risen. Bless the Lord. That empty tomb sounds the death bell for every other religious system on the face of the earth because church, there is only one risen Savior and his name is Jesus. There is only one way to heaven and his name is Jesus. There is only one who descended into the depths of death and came to life again, the eternal victor over death and hell in the grave for all who will believe in him and his name is Jesus the Christ. So then verses 12 and 13, the plan. His, his resurrection is a problem for all who do not believe, and so they try to find a way to discount it. It's what the leaders of the Jews are doing in these verses. They're, they're making up a lie. They've got to cover up the truth of what happened. They devised a scheme to avoid having to face the facts. And so what they did is they willingly chose darkness over the light. And we still see people today who willingly, deliberately, intentionally choose darkness over the light. They may hear the claims of the gospel, but then they turn a deaf ear to it. And they try to justify their position, try to justify their rejection, but it is just that is rejection of the gospel. They are saying no to the only one who can give them life. But they are refusing Jesus, who is the truth, the life, the way, and they are believing the lie of Satan and going on into an eternal damnation. It's a foolish plan. Verses 14 and 15, the perjury. They agreed with the soldiers that if Pilate heard about this thing, they would lie for them and get them off the hook. After all, a Roman soldier, uh, if he fell asleep at his post, that carried a death sentence for him. But notice what they told them to say. His disciples came by night and stole him away. That was the lie. That, that's what happened. That they came up with another plan. But the funny part of that is, those eleven disciples, eleven remaining disciples, were off somewhere cowering in fear. They were so scared that when he was arrested, that they fled in fear at that time. They were afraid that only one of them, only Jesus, was brave enough to go to the crucifixion. They were so afraid that they were uh, that they allowed the women to go do the, uh, prepare, finish preparing the, the body for for burial. So those men would have never stolen that body. They were too scared. Our passage begins with the tale of life, but it ends with the telling of a lie. And I have to ask you this morning, which has most influenced your life? The tale of life or the lie? Because you have been influenced by one of those. The lie, you've either believed the lie, and there are people who do believe a lie, or you are willing to accept the truth of the life of Jesus. The events of that day will forever reverberate throughout eternity. And I'm here to declare this morning that if you come to Jesus by faith, you can be saved and you can become a partaker in the life of God. But I also have to declare the other side of that truth, which is this, that those who believe the lie and choose to believe the lie are eternally damned. As I close, let me just remind you about We've talked about this morning about the first resurrection day. That's the title of my message today, the first resurrection day, but I want you to know it will not be the last resurrection day. Because he lives, those who place their faith in him will live also. Is there a hallelujah this morning? Those in the graves will come forth one day, and those who are alive when he comes, they will never taste death. Because when he died, he tasted death for us. Thank God for the day when death lost the battle with life forever and ever. Thank God for the day the battle was forever won for you and me. Thank God for the fact that you and I do not have to fear death. It's just a transition into our eternal home when Jesus comes because he has conquered death, hell, and the grave. Thank God for that first resurrection day. Somebody say, bless the Lord. I want you to stand with me because I want to close the service this way. We've often sung the song, Because He Lives, and I want to give you some reasons why you can can raise a hallelujah in the house today. I'm going to give you, oh, six or eight or so. And every one that I give you, I want you to respond with your best hallelujah if it resonates within your heart. First one is this. Because Jesus lives, you and I can be saved by the grace of God. Because he lives, we can have our sins forever washed away. Because he lives, we can go to heaven when we leave this world. Because he lives, the grave has no power over those who believe. Because he lives, you will never have to take one step in this world alone. Because he lives, there is hope, there is help, and there is a home awaiting you in eternity. Because he lives, you are alive. Because he lives, your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Because he lives, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because he lives, sin has no more control over you. Because he lives, you are saved forevermore. Now put your hands together and lift your hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord.